0: No, my Hi Am My name is Jeremy, and this is the Maxim Institute podcast. What does it look like to ask an entire ethnic group to forgive another? How can we hope to speak across the fault lines of historic injustice? This year, our annual Sir John Graham Lecture was delivered by South Africa's Professor Pumla Gobodo-Madikizela, a clinical psychologist and esteemed academic with a unique perspective on violence, trauma, and racial injustice. Through her experience on South Africa's post-apartheid Truth and Reconciliation Commission and her decades of scholarship around the world since then, she brings an incredible perspective on how societies and individuals can attempt to restore lives and relationships in the wake of historic and contemporary wrongdoing. We recorded this interview on the morning of Pumla's lecture. It was raining, and I had just driven her back to the hotel after she'd thoroughly charmed John Campbell in a live interview on TVNZ Breakfast. She sat down with our CEO, Alex Pink, in a quiet corner of the hotel foyer to go a bit deeper into ideas of injustice, reconciliation, evil, forgiveness, and what Pumla has described as reparative humanism. In this podcast, you'll also hear the voice of Lindsay Farris, a member of our board of trustees who grew up in Cape Town, just kilometers away from Pumla's home, and has since done her master's work looking specifically at issues of forgiveness and reconciliation in law. You can find more from Pumla, including video of her full Sir John Graham lecture and her Q&A time answering audience questions, on our events page at maxim.org.nz. For now, here's our conversation.
1: So, good morning, Professor Gabordo Manekezella. Thank you so much for spending time with us, and welcome to New Zealand. Uh, It's a real honour to have you here and uh, to be able to speak to you about your work and I know that one of the things that's, that's been distinctive about your work, um, perhaps particularly in recent years, has been a focus on what you've called reparative humanism. I wonder if perhaps we could start with you uh, telling us a little bit about that, that concept, about reparative humanism, and maybe so we don't stay at the conceptual level, uh, giving us some, some examples, if you can, of what that might look like in practice.
2: First, to start with the word reparative. I realise that with a process such as forgiveness and forgiving, there tends to be an expectation that the story starts and ends with forgiveness. That forgiving is something that closes the conversation. But the reality is that we have to wake up every day and start all over again, repairing. That these crimes against humanity, these um, uh, these atrocities, they really shatter. Not just people's lives; uh, they shatter communities, they shatter worlds, and to repair them or to redress that experience of, of 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 just destruction requires something much deeper and much more, you know, long term engagement. And so, the idea of the reparative is. Uh, just from the idea of repairing as a process that is ongoing rather than, you know, a closure, forgiving and moving on. It's more like you are repairing something that is broken. You, 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 can, you can repair and so the wound remains and the task of repairing and making sure that you, you hold it together, you know, in order for it to stay restored is the meaning behind that. It's doing it over and over again. And so that's really the vision around the use of the word repairing. It's also from psychoanalytic um, knowledge about how we develop the idea of making peace with the other, the idea of empathy. And there's a scholar, a psychoanalytic scholar, known as Melanie Klein, and she argued that as young children, we often are angry with our, with our parents. Uh, we love them and we hate them at the same time. And in the moment of hate, we want to destroy them. You know, we want to we want them to to be you know to to, to experience the pain that we're we are experience, experiencing because of what they're doing to us but then there's a moment where we reflect on our thoughts and our aggression our internal aggression against our loved ones and we want to repair we want to fix it and and all of this happens at a much deeper level where the awareness, we we gain the awareness of the damage we are doing to our loved ones, even though it's not physical damage. So the repairing happens at a deeply internal level. We are fixing, you know, the destruction that we are causing inside. So the destruction is not out there, but it's inside. And so the repairing begins at that very deeper inner level. And so I draw from that knowledge of, where the beginnings of empathy are they are at at, at our deepest level of unconscious becoming you know com- becoming and coming to the place of of connecting the damage of fixing the damage so that there's an integration between the love and the hate you know the destruction and the building and so this is what the, this is what the idea of, of the re, the reparative comes into play.
1: I, I know that um, you know one one of the things that has distinguished your work and, and certainly the way that I first came across your work was reading about your uh, your interactions with Eugene de Kock, the the man who was the the head of the counterinsurgency uh, unit quote unquote um, for the apartheid regime, who a man who said he'd lost count of how many people he'd he'd killed. Um, and you did a series of interviews where you, you sat down face-to-face with him and you, and you spoke to him. Um, and I think some of the, the, the concepts you were just talking about, empathy and re, uh, repair, reparative uh, humanism, that they seemed to me as though they were a part of the conversation that you were having with him. But can you talk to us about what it was like to, to sit face-to-face with somebody who had done the things that he had done? Um, really great acts of evil. Uh, and and to sort of take those concepts and for them to be real in a conversation with another human being, uh, in you know in those circumstances,
2: that experience with de Dukok was really the first time for me. I uh, I began to focus on these concepts. They were so real in the encounter with Eugene de You you have to remember that. Here is a man who everyone sees as the embodiment of all that is evil about apartheid.
1: And his name was Prime Evil, wasn't it? He he was nicknamed
2: Prime Evil. Mm. And he himself had confessed to committing these crimes. And in fact, he said, I've killed so many people, I don't even know. You know, he lost count, he doesn't know how many people he had killed. And the moment of encounter with him, and discovering the human side, as I say in the book, the human side. And this moment came because of my response to a particular moment in my interview where he expressed vulnerability. So in my meeting with him, he had started to describe his meeting with the widows of the man that he had murdered. And I'd ask him a simple question to described to me what it was like to be face-to-face with the widows of the men that he had murdered. And he, he stumbled a little bit over his words and then said, I wish, I wish I could bring their bodies back alive. And he was holding, almost as if he's holding something, a baby, you know, in his hands. He said, I wish I could say, here are your husbands. And at that moment... I could both feel and see deep pain in his eyes. In fact, there were tears in his eyes and his hands were shaking as he was holding, almost like carrying a body in his hands as he was describing this moment and his wish to bring back their bodies back alive. He was shaking and there were tears in his eyes. And at that moment, I very instinctively reached out and touched his hand. And It was a moment that, uh, as I reflected on it, it was a deeply human moment, but at the same time, it was a moment that tortured me. As I left the prison, thinking about the encounter, I kept on turning it around. How could I do this? How could I touch this person's hand who had killed so many of my loved ones? And that was the beginning of the journey for me, the journey of understanding what empathy is because I started reflecting on who I was at that moment and I arrived at the conclusion that this was truly a human moment. I describe it to myself as a human moment, but what puzzled me was why I was bothered by it, why I was interrogating myself about this moment that was so truly human. So I had to go back. I had to go back for myself to clarify for myself. I wanted some clarity. Was this a human moment? Was I manipulated in this, you know, at that moment by Eugène de Kok because he had killed so many people, and also the voices of so many other people in my head who were saying, "It's not possible. You know, it can't be. You're being manipulated." And so I wanted some clarity for myself. I wanted emotional clarity. I wanted moral clarity about what I had done. And over the next 46 hours and three months, I um, was convinced that uh, that was a genuine moment of, of empathy. And, and then now I had to, to do the conceptual work of trying to understand. What does empathy mean when you are engaging with these kinds of stories?
1: That's fascinating. So so the human came before the conceptual?
2: Yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important. It it, it has been important for me to start with with the human, to start with the experience, to start with the experience and then to then unravel it and say, you know, what does it mean? How do we understand? And what is the new knowledge? Because there was no doubt in my mind that this is something that I had not read about. And so I had to, to theorize about it. I had to explain it. I had to theorize about it.
1: So if the human comes first, what is it that uh, summons or, or compels you into that moment of human interaction you know, in, in in the absence of theory, or uh, you know, that creates this experience that then you can theorize about. I assume, and you'll tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure, but I assume it's something that's deeper than deeper than uh, an intellectual idea. There's something that is actually sort of pulling you into that encounter.
2: You know, I I absolutely agree with you. There the are two ways uh, of answering this question. One is to say some experiences are beyond explanation, you know, but, you know, we are in the business of explaining and constructing knowledge and meaning, and so we've got to find words for these things. And one way, which is the second way of responding to your question, one way... That I have explained it is uh, understanding a, a kind of a self-transcendent moment. Understanding this is a self is, is something beyond the self that you are transcending all that you understand uh, about yourself, and and that and the reason for this is that something happens in this space between you and the other person. Something falls into this intersubjective space, something unexpected. So in my work, for instance, I've written about the emergence of the unexpected. Um, That, for for want of a better term of explaining what happens, it's it's something that emerges in this intersubjective space that is totally unexpected. You know, we're coming from different sides of history, from different sides of um, uh, of the violence of the past. And uh, in terms of what is expected, we're supposed to hate each other. We're supposed to keep a distance between each other. You know, I can't touch this man except by a long rod, you know. And here is a moment that actually invites me to touch him, invites me to connect with him. It's a human moment. It's really something that um, we have in, our, in 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 ourselves. I- if only we can remain open to it. The reason that uh, these experiences don't happen frequently enough is is because often. We question ourselves. We question these human moments, and we, sh- we we build up the wall because it's not quote unquote supposed to happen. And so we pull up the wall, and 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 we don't allow the flow of that possibility of the unfolding of that human within us.
1: Thinking about terms like um, the other, them and us, the idea of a of a wall between uh, between individuals or, or between groups it, it strikes me that one of the, um, the dangers I suppose of that kind of thinking is that you you lose the ability to see yourself in the other person and for them them to see themselves in you and uh, I mean we've we spoke yesterday about the fact that, that in New Zealand the um, the perpetrator of the, the terror attacks in, in Christchurch for many in the media there's been a, uh, a decision not to name him. Not show his face, um and while on the one hand you can completely understand why that would be so because you you know you don't want him to receive notoriety for his acts, which is you know to to some extent what he's after, um so you don't want to give him what he wants, but at the same time um, when we do something like that, do we lose the ability to see ourselves in the person who's on uh on the other side of, of the issue? Do we lose the ability to see our own capacity for, uh, for evil and for violence um, if, if, if we hold somebody at, at such a distance in those situations? That is,
2: the, that is the danger of that response to this kind of crime. I say it's a danger because then it's, it's something that exists at a distance from, from who we are that person remains the monster that he is in our minds. And there is no connection between us and him. And yet, if we were to confront the reality that he's someone's son, he's our neighbor, we may even have gone to church with him, then it forces us to reflect on the possibility that evil exists in ourselves. And once we realize that possibility, we are able to, to be more vigilant, you know, to be more vigilant and, 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 and tough on ourselves and notice that slippage, those slippages. Whereas if our reaction is that, oh, the monster is out there, away from, apart, separate from who we are, it reduces our chances of, of, uh, of self-reflection, you know, and, and our, account- our own accountability and, and implicatedness in these kinds of crimes.
1: A lot of people, I think, come, come to a moment um, like the kind of the moment that you've described with, with Eugene de Coq, um or, or other encounters with somebody who's, who's done them wrong and almost feels like to, to be open to the human in that experience, uh, to, to empathy, um, and to the possibility of forgiveness, uh, involves uh, weakness. Um, even that, in some ways, they will be compromising their opportunity to, tra- to obtain true justice in that situation. How, how would you respond to that concern?
2: It comes from a place where we see our lives and ourselves as being self-contained as individuals, not in relation to others. That I hold the power of my individuality, you know, uh, I am not answerable to anyone. It comes from that place, whereas This idea of openness, of being open to the other, to the possibility of engaging with the other, even an other who's an enemy, comes from a place of community and understanding of our world as being interconnected, that my life is inextricably interwoven with yours. And therefore, because it is, I have responsibility for your own becoming human that i owe you you know the the capacity of you for you to become a human relies on me in as much as my humanity relies on your bestowing the sense of humanity on me and that is a particular kind of ethic of relationality that's different from the one that defines one's world as being very individual and very much uh, solely reliant on 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 my own resources rather than on the connection with others.
1: So, is it possible to have justice and forgiveness?
2: Very much. In fact, if we if we think about justice, not only in terms of. Uh, Criminal justice, prosecutorial justice, but justice as merciful justice—it's possible to imagine to imagine a sense of forgiveness, a sense of uh, of restorative rather than a put- punitive kind of justice.
3: Pumla, um you talked earlier about connectedness and. Sort of common humanity. Are you drawing there? Could you talk to us a little bit about the concept of Ubuntu and and what that means and what that looks like?
2: Ubuntu is a, it's an African ethic that's based on the idea of connectedness, of relationality. That my subjectivity depends on the way I describe it is that my subjectivity depends. On being witnessed, on on witnessing each other's life stories, in 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 my language we say, "Umuntu which literally means, uh, "Your humanity depends on our relationship as fellow human beings." It's 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 a it's the contrast to the Cartesian perspective of I think therefore I am. It's, it's more, you know, m- my existence depends on being connected to others. And I think it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's very central in these ideas of empathy, you know, reconciliation and the desire to reach out to one's enemies um it, it's it's that openness that you can embrace an other even if they come from a different world and it, it it's a useful way of creating the foundation for that possibility of connection after especially after these kinds of crimes
3: i guess i had a question around after um after you had that moment um with Eugene Ducock and then you sort of went back to your community or sort of shared that with people no wonder that you know I would have imagined that felt quite vulnerable you know um, and did you did you find that their response was to draw on Ubuntu or to you know how did they respond to that because that's you know they would have felt it's just a you know such a mixture of emotion
2: you know what is interesting. For me, and and I and I use that word in, interesting because it really was. It struck me at the time that there was a difference between how black people responded to this, to my story of encounter with Eugene Ducoq, and the response of white people at the time. Black people were were almost in. Whenever I told the story, there was almost like a wonder, like a really, you know, there wasn't a judgment. This was really the, what encouraged me to go back. There there, there was a, you know, almost like a, you know, a a, a thoughtful reflection on, wow, you know, did this really happen? Whereas white people, on uh, most of them, that when I talked about this, there was an Im- almost an immediate rejection, you know. That he's a monster, he's evil, you know. He's manipulating you. There are all these judgmental terms. It was really interesting to me to to think about the react, the kinds of reactions, and 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 you write there was initially a nervousness. How am I going to tell my people? How am I going to share this? But Whenever I talked about it, there, was, there were these you know these, these d- different responses that to me, were very revealing about the different perspectives from, from, from blacks and, 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 and from whites.
3: You've done a lot of work around guilt and remorse as well. Do you think that was obviously playing into some of the reaction? Of the whites that you were speaking to, or the way that they reacted, as an I suppose wanting to distance themselves.
2: I've come to believe that that's part of it. That Eugene de represents for many white South Africans the evil that they themselves participated in and by voting for apartheid, or those who didn't vote by benefiting from it, and so. There is a kind of guilt by association, and so the reaction of distancing the self from that story is a way of protecting themselves from, you know, from the connection to the story of, of, of evil. And in a way, I understand that. I understand, you know, uh, that that wish to distance because it's very scary to To confront that side, uh, you know, or that possibility, that or the knowledge to confront the knowledge that I benefited from this evil, and so the distancing is is a way of it's a self protective measure.
3: But in its own way, it kind of goes against um like Ubuntu that we were talking about. It's doing exactly the same. You know, separating.
2: Absolutely, it's splitting. You know, in 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 psychological terms, it's a splitting of the self. That I, you know, people enter the space of these reflections on the past with these two sides. You know, being the person who benefited from the evil, and and knowing the self as the loving mother, parent, and sometimes even the Christian. And the difficulty in reconciling these two sides and so the effort, the distancing, is the keeping them separate and, and therefore never actually realising the connection. And because of that failure of, the con- of integration, the, the total inability to, to empathise with the people who have suffered from this past.
1: When you think about people... Um, coming together to, to to grapple with these questions. You've spoken about the importance of civility. Um, can you tell us what you mean by civility and, and why it's important for these kind of uh, encounters?
2: It's the expectation that hu- the human side will thrive despite all that has happened. That to be human means to be caring for one another. That caring comes first. That uh, being a human being in relation to another is showing that side of caring for the other. That even in the worst circumstances, our best side will rise up. That is the civility, that to become the best that we can that we can be as human beings, um, you know. It's it's just knowing is that part of ourselves where we know that we are connected to the other, and and that to know that it's in my hands not to destroy the other, but rather to build you up as a fellow human being. Uh, you know, Emmanuel Levinas speaks about responsibility for the other you know it's a he 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 builds of course a much more complicated way of understanding these relationships but that very notion that um I'm responsible for creating a community of human beings who care for for one another it's in my hands it's in my responsibility that unless I do that then I am abdicating my responsibility as a human other, and that is that is the civility that's what I mean by civility
1: and just to um, perhaps uh, draw things uh, together um, and to a close, I think I've, I've heard you speak about the importance of, of hope as well, because I imagine that if you are going to approach somebody in one of these encounters with civility um, open to the possibility of human uh, connection and empathy. In some way, you need hope to uh, to motivate you, um, to draw you together and, and to sustain you. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of hope?
2: Hope as a word it exists almost as something that y- y- you don't yet know what's going to happen, but you are hoping that the best part of this person will emerge in this encounter. And they too are hoping that you will give the best part of yourself. And so it's that that hope that the human side will, will thrive. And of course we know that it doesn't always turn that way. There isn't always this sense of reciprocity when people encounter each other, that there are all sorts of possibilities you know, that exists. It's both the destructive and the human that can emerge. But you're hoping that in the goodness of your spirit that you bring into the conversation, that it will invite the other's goodness as well. Uh, If you don't have that hope, you can't even begin, in fact, to convey the goodness. It is the hope that allows you to go to that place.
1: Well, those are um, some really inspiring words and thoughts. Thank you, Professor Gaboru Marikazeela, for your, uh, not just your your scholarship and your experience, but your humanity, um, what you embody and what you've brought to New Zealand. And we're really grateful for your time with us.
0: We'd like to thank and acknowledge the New Zealand Law Foundation for their support of the Sir John Graham Lecture this year. After leaving New Zealand, Professor Gaboru Marikazeela reflected on her experiences of this place particularly the significance of the hongi she experienced during a pōwhiri welcome onto Waipapa Marae at the University of Auckland. With this further reflection, she sent back an expanded text of her lecture, which we will be releasing as a monograph in print and online later this year. If you'd like to get a copy of this, and keep up with the rest of our research and analysis of politics and policy in New Zealand, you can sign up on the homepage of our website to get our monthly forum email and invitations to future Maxim Institute events. You can also follow us on Facebook and check out our back catalogue of Sir John Graham Lecture videos on our YouTube channel. Just search Maxim Institute on any of those platforms. Thanks for listening to the Maxim Institute podcast. You can search and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the team at Maxim Institute, Matewa.